This is Pause and Listen. We're going to talk about three pieces of new classical music that we think you should hear and that you can find right here on the internet. If you've listened already, you may have some thoughts that may or may not line up with ours, or you may want our thoughts to think about as you listen after the episode. What you can also do is pause us right after we listen to each piece and come back when you're done, and you'll be listening right along with us. Joining us this episode are Richard Driehoff Jr. He is a Baltimore-based composer and co-director of the ensemble Earspace, Dorothy Cooper, a violist who performs in the Baltimore, Washington area, and Sandy Gibbons, a research microbiologist for the U.S. Army and the base section leader of the Handel Choir of Baltimore. The research microbiologist part factors into your piece, as I'm sure that is to some degree why you picked it. Indeed it does. But we're not going to listen to yours first. We're actually going to start with Richard's piece. And Richard, why don't you tell us just a little bit before we listen to what you brought for us? Sure. Uh, so the piece that you're going to hear that I selected today is Enopape's Keilschrift. And what does Keilschrift mean? So Keilschrift, if I could pronounce it any time, uh, actually translates as cuneiform, which is one of the first scripts, the Mesopotamian uh, first language that we have. What form? Cuneiform. Cuneiform. Okay. I'm not entirely sure what that is. So, you know, about 4500 BC, we start to get some of the first uh, written script that we see. And a lot of it is tax law and codes and different things that people thought were important and worth writing down. So what Inopape does is he takes these kind of primordial sound worlds he's trying to create and develops this idea into this 20-minute piece for orchestra. And throughout the piece, you hear these kind of unusual sounds in between you know it starts with a single string instrument you hear different instruments outside of their characteristic ranges and they just get really exciting you know it's you get to hear a piece transform on a single theme and that's something you hear throughout classical music throughout jazz contemporary works all over the place Exciting is good, and we're going to listen to it right now. Uh, you can listen to it, too, if you haven't already. If you want to wait until you hear us talk about it to listen to it, that's fine, too. Either way, we'll be right back with more Pause and Listen after we listen to Kyle Schrift by I Know Papa. Eno Papa has been commissioned by and performed by many very prominent musical ensembles. You can find the full list on his recording page. Welcome back to Pause and Listen. We've been listening to the first piece on our episode, and that is Keilschrift by Enno Poppe. The performance we listened to was the recording by the Southwest German Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sylvain Kamperling. And Dorothy, what do you think of the piece? I would have to say, as a violist, I appreciate that there are no violins in this recording. <laughs> um, I have to get on my crabby violist plug at least once in this episode. Um, Take that to said violin. Hey. Uh, no, I would say that this is a really interesting piece. It is, it takes a motif that, again, as a violist, is hard for me to listen to. If you are a musician, you'll know that the first two notes are out of tune to what we think of as standard tuning in Western music. Of course, this is on purpose. There's not a problem 
or the orchestra, but to me, it makes me feel slightly nauseous. There was a comparison that was made when we were talking about this piece, when we were listening to it, to an elementary school ensemble warming up. But then you realize, then you just have to think, they're doing that on purpose. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Sandy, what'd you think? All right, it, I think it, it speaks to the uh, the idea that if you're going to make a daring and bold artistic choice, just do it and don't apologize for it. Um, I think uh, I, I love the piece. I mean, I think it's it's I, I listened to it just right after I came home from work today, and and uh, uh, I think it 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 really. Uh, I mean, it takes a motif and it builds on it and it builds around counterpoint and, and inversions and some of the things that we'll talk about a little bit later. To me, it was a really interesting set of sonorities. And I, I, I personally am reminded of, of there's parts of that that remind me of some late Mahler. Um, some of the sonorities come out of Das Lied von der Erde, for example. Uh, you know, some of the, the woodwinds in particular. Uh, I'm reminded of, of some of the Bartok and some of the bitonal uh, stuff that was going on in the early, early 20th century. Uh, but it's, it's then fused with this wonderful microtonal the stuff that gets us completely out of the the Western tonal space uh, for at least a little bit, and it's just it's, to me it was a, it was a lot of fun to hear it for the first time. Yeah, you mentioned twentieth century harmony, and that's kind of what I thought when I listened to this piece. For this being a twenty first century piece, what year is this from, Richard? Um, I think it's two thousand eight was when he finally finished the piece. So this recording says uh, um, Donawashinga Music Taga 2007. Okay, so 2007. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know whether that was actually the the year that it was finished being composed mm-hmm. or so. I mean, you got it close. Nice. But I feel like, <laughs> for one thing, I feel like I need to listen to it more times just to become more involved with this piece and the piece is less than 20 minutes long so it's an easy one to listen to multiple times and it might be one that you want to listen to multiple times to really get what's going on what it was like to me was that so the piece is called Keilschrift and you said that was cuneiform uh script cuneiform script yeah uh-huh. yeah um and that was a i thought of it as a picture of cuneiform script in music in musical form and what i mean that, that's just how it appeared to me when uh-huh. i listened to it and maybe i will get more into um the things that happen in the music the way that the non-traditional tuning is used the way that the some that some of the middle eastern tuning is used in this piece yeah definitely um you know for me one of the things it's it's such a primary motive that comes back and really takes force of this entire piece and when you have something like that you know it's almost have you ever when you're in a group of people tried to read something together at the same time (laughs) you know you get that you've got something in front of you you know what it's supposed to say and it just comes out a little bit different some people start a little early some come a little higher some come a little lower there's spaces in different places and it's that kind of amorphousness that comes from togetherness that I think is really interesting in this piece. It's what you were saying about, and I, you might be about to say this, but you were going to say something, Sandy. Yeah, uh, it, it, I, I mentioned during during our little discussion about it, there, there's some unintentional aleatoric elements. Yeah, that's um, what I... <laughs> but, it, but what it reminds me of, I mean, he could have easily caused this, called this piece something like normal distribution, you know, in statistics, uh, <laughs> where it all clusters around a mean, but there's some deviation to it. And I think it's a lot of the noodling reminds me of around that the, the pri- that central melody that noodling reminds me of 
of some of that kind of uh, of what you're describing. Mm-hmm. This episode has a STEM theme to it, and we'll hear that <laughs> in your piece later. <laughs> um, any more on this piece? We can go to our next piece of this episode. Did you have anything else on this piece, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can talk a little bit about kind of the the Middle Eastern influence. It's not in us more. I mean, it's not anything direct. We've in got here. time to talk about Great. it. Great. Well, then we'll talk. Um, you know that the split, if you listen to that opening gesture, it's a minor third. And then the note that comes after that is the microtonal note. Um, and that's, it's halfway between a minor second and a major second. So it's a note we're not used to hearing. It's, it's, it comes somewhat awkward on Western ears. Um, but it's, it's an interval that exists quite a bit in Middle Eastern Makamat. Not necessarily in this context, actually not in this context at all. But that spacing is in a couple of the different uh, scales that are used throughout there. And, you know, they have an inherent character to each of those um, that, to me, it's got an emotive quality, whether it makes you nauseous or whether Mm -hmm. it makes you... There's a tension to it, I think, um, or some sort of unease at the very least. And that's part of what I think makes it beautiful. It's not meant to be a pretty piece that you're going to tap your toe to or anything like that. But there's some inherent feeling of what is this? We're all creating this together. And that's part of the artistic process of this piece. To it's me. kind of enjoying the discomfort of the newness exactly. of what's happening, which I think is kind of one of the best things about new music is that it is a discomfort that you can enjoy. So uh, talking about it being Middle Eastern music, what's a German dude uh, doing <laughs> com- composing Middle Eastern style music? I, mean, I know that Berlin is the capital of the new music world pretty much, but um, is there any relation to uh, like where Enno Papa got the idea of mm-hmm. um, making a piece that was a depiction of this cuneiform script? Sure. Um, I'm not sure, uh, in all honesty, um, but... The idea of taking sounds compositionally that you hear, you know, as composers, we're constantly listening to anything we can get our hands on. And I know with his music, he's very interested in developing a sonority and then running with it outside of any sort of direct influence. Um, So while I think some of these sound worlds of what he could connote as being early Mesopotamian cultures which you know i think he's deriving and interpreting what he believes could have existed he he takes those and runs with them in his own way without any consideration or attempt to mimic makamat or middle eastern music but i i think if you listen to you know unkathum and a lot of middle eastern stars you hear similar qualities in a lot of people doing the same thing at the same time um, and with variation in there. So I think, I mean, that's in the back of his mind, but I don't think it's anything directly that we can say, this is this, this is this, and draw those analogies. It's just kind of using his existing knowledge of it to to inform his depiction of his interpretation of this subject. Exactly. You know, it's really interesting to me that you talk a lot about many people doing the same th- thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the impression I have of the piece is almost the opposite. Interesting. Uh, Because I feel like uh, I said when we were talking earlier Mm -hmm. as we listened to the piece that I really felt like Papa took this theme and was strangling it, trying to push it together to force it into something. And what you hear as this goes on, the, the motive is repeated over and over and over again. 
But what happens is it doesn't come together. It's like it's trying to force these people to play together and to be together. And instead, you have these offshoots, these outbursts that um, come as kind of a, a reaction mm -hmm. to the sameness rather than people enjoying playing together. It's it's this kind of outward force, this outward energy. It's like trying uh -huh. to push two magnets of the same pole together. Except like 15 magnets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All in the same direction, all in the same polarity in yeah. that direction. Uh, Dorothy, how about we go to your piece now? Sure. You brought Anna Torvald's daughters in the light of air. Yes. Thank you for saying her name for me. Um, I you know I don't know Icelandic, but that is my closest approximation that, to it. Uh, that's about where I land. I as listen well. to a lot of Sigur Rós, so yeah. I have have a tangential understanding, which right. is to say I don't really have any at all. Right. Um, so I brought this piece. Um, this is actually a very personal piece to me because this is a piece that I performed myself as part of the Evolution Contemporary Music Series. So I wanted to do a small plug for that as well. It's done by Judah Adashi, um, and it's performed here in Mount Vernon in Baltimore. He's probably going to be on our show at some point. That's a good idea. Mm -hmm. He's great. So we, we performed this piece, and we were lucky enough to have Anna come and um, perform the kind of the electronic music side of uh, the performance with us. So she came and talked to us, uh, told us about the piece. We met her and her husband and kind of got a feel for what was happening. So it was, um, it was a really um, enriching experience because often with new music, you kind of, you're guessing at what the composer mm -hmm. wants you to do. So this piece, In the Light of Air, is a very atmospheric piece. There isn't a driving melody that goes straight through like our last piece, she says many times you can hear it in talking to her, you can see it on her website, you can see it in interviews. Uh, the idea is that the melodies, as they exist in this piece, are made not made up of not just melodic notes, but also sounds. So sounds from percussion, sounds from the electronic track, everything across the board. So this is... This is meant to evoke feelings, to take you on a journey, but not necessarily be a melody like you would hear in Mozart. Well, think about that as you listen to In the Light of Air by Anna Torvaldsdottir, or perhaps that uh, rang a few bells for you if you've listened to it already, or if you are going to listen to it after we talk about it. Uh, that's fine, too. We're going to listen to it now. We'll be right back here on Pause and Listen. When we get back, you'll hear my correction of my pronunciation of Anna Thorvaldsdottir's last name. She won the New York Philharmonic's Kravis Emerging Composer Prize, and later premiered her symphonic poem Metacosmos with the orchestra. That piece is her most recently released recording. Welcome back to Pause and Listen. We've been listening to the second piece on our episode, Anna Thorvaldsdottir, I pronounced her last name wrong before, Anna Thorvaldsdottir's In the Light of Air. Sandy, what'd you think? 
I thought that was an extraordinarily atmospheric uh, piece. Um, I mean, I guess the title kind of implies that, but but it it requires a state of mind to get into to really put yourself into a position into, or into a situation where you can really listen to this. And I think that I think that sh- that that that's a common element with the previous piece that we heard, and that you just you have to open yourself up to this music. You can't go in there with any kind of prejudgment. You just have to accept it and meet it on the terms that it offers and not expect it to be anything different from what it is going to be. If you do that, you will be richly rewarded by this by this kind of music. And this piece is, I think, a real testament to that. Yeah, and I mean, we were talking about how this piece is very very pleasant it is very tonal there are there is a lot of major tonality happening but it just doesn't sound to a regular person like a regular person's definition of classical music richard what did you think i mean i i love this piece one of the things about it that i find so satisfying is the pacing um it has a way when you're listening to something like this of making you lose track of time and that's what great art does to me you know it totally encompasses where you are what you are you know i think it forces you into that state of mind that you're talking about i don't think even if you don't come at it ready for that i think it has a way of drawing you in and creating that experience for you and i think that's what we're trying to do as artists you know that's that's what makes music so valuable yeah it just you can lie back into this music and let it absorb you we were talking about earlier about the melody in the piece. I mean, I said just at the beginning when we we're listening to the first movement, there is melody. It's just slower. It's extremely slow. It, it's it's one of those things that, like everyone else is saying, you have to accept. You can't expect that it's going to show you where the piece is going right away. You have to be willing to explore as things come to you. And I think that's part of the genius of the piece is that it it won't be hurried you can't be impatient because you'll miss the whole experience this way a lot of trust involved i think in listening to new music in general but it's but especially a piece like this that gives you the rewards slowly but very and very greatly rewards you for uh, sticking it out through, which really doesn't wind up feeling like you've had to stick it out through a piece like right. this. Um, so we listened to the recording from the International Contemporary Ensemble, who it was written for. And Dorothy, you've performed this piece, and we were talking about your experience playing this piece. And so uh, what is it like to go through this piece as a performer? It, this is This is a very scary piece to perform. <laughs> Um, the while the individual parts aren't necessarily the most technically demanding, like playing um, a piece of Bartok chamber music or something, where it's it's virtuosic in that traditional way. Right. Um, the the most important part is your interactions with the other musicians. So there are parts in the piece that are very much rhythmically defined. There's very specific things you have to do. And even though the beat is slow, the beat has to be perfectly in time. But then on the other hand, there are large sections of the piece where all of the musicians are doing completely different things. 
and there's no one pulse. Everybody has their own tempo. And the only way that you start or stop what you're doing is based on what somebody else has done. And so it's um, the kind of piece that happens slightly differently every time. So also a lot of trust involved in playing this piece. A lot of trust. And of course, the International Contemporary Ensemble, a type of group that is probably used to uh, putting together a work like this. So our final piece is quite a bit different from the other two. And we'd been joking that this is kind of the STEM episode. And this is really how this is really where we get very much into why that is. Sandy, what have you brought us? Yeah, so I've <clears throat> I've brought uh, the Misa Charles Darwin by uh, Gregory Brown. Um, and uh, this is very much a, a, a subject near and dear to my heart. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a microbiologist by, by trade, and, and I, I work in this space of you know, DNA and, and, and life and evolution and all this thing. So, so when I heard that somebody had set the, some of the uh, writings of Charles Darwin to music, I was absolutely thrilled. And when I heard that it was, that it was somebody I knew from and went to school with in, at Amherst, uh, I was even more thrilled, <clears throat> and so somebody had had actually performed with before. So then I took you know I listened to the piece and and just and, and realized how just wonderful this this music is to me, and crossing that that divide between or that perceived divide between the arts and the sciences. I really don't think there is one. So it very much appealed to me on that on that uh, on that intellectual space and. Coming from an early music background, it also appeals to me on that a cappella Renaissance style motet. And so, and to me, it's in many ways a, a f fabulous blend between old and new and a subject that is intellectually very near and dear to, to my heart. Yeah, this is in the style of a 15th century mass. So enjoy this when you are listening to it, or if you listened to it already, I hope you enjoyed it. And when you listen to it, whether it is before or after we talk about it, we'll be listening to it right now, and we'll be right back here on Pause and Listen. While the Misa Charles Darwin is by far Gregory W. Brown's most famous work, he has composed other vocal works as well as some bagatelles for guitar trio. Welcome back to Pause and Listen. We just listened to the final piece on this episode, Misa Charles Darwin by Gregory W. Brown. Sandy brought this in, so we'll hear from Richard first. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting piece because anytime you get that kind of juxtaposition of something more modern and out of place from the context that it's originally derived from with something else, it's... You know, it really generates an interesting response. Um, and these masses are such a solid, um, irrefutable type of set, types of settings, types of pieces that to hear it with this text is, you know, it's a little uh, off, not off putting, but unsettling. Um, and I think that's part of the point is that we can take these texts and apply them in such a rigid way 
and experience how that affects our understanding. Especially because it is the words of Charles Darwin for the most part. Right. And although most people who are against the teaching of Charles Darwin don't tend to have their services in Latin, um, because the Catholic Church, if I remember correctly, is actually accepting of evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's interesting to see that juxtaposition of Charles Darwin and the Mass. And the text actually very sparingly uses the actual original Latin from right. the, the Misa. Uh, Dorothy? You know, I I have more questions than opinions about this piece. Mm-hmm. Um, because I can, I can come up with a whole list of different reasons why the composer would put these two things together. Why would you put together a mass with Charles Darwin. Why would you put a mass together with Charles Darwin in the Renaissance style? Mm-hmm. What 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 are we supposed to learn from this? Is it supposed to be ironic? Is it supposed to be irreverent? What what is it supposed to be? And what are we supposed to understand from it? I think that as the music stands, it's beautiful. It's a, a wonderful utilization of a former style. Um, and if you don't listen to the words, you can enjoy it as a mass without taking any further mm-hmm. steps into understanding it more deeply. Uh, but beyond that, I'm, my mind is still kind of open. Yeah, it's an interesting concept and perhaps an interesting decision. And as I read on the website for the recording of this piece, we heard the one by New York Polyphony, and it was this recording that I read about, uh, there is a connection to the composer's family, which is somewhat famous. Pretty famous, I'd say. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Actually, the uh, the the composer's brother uh, is Dan Brown, who uh, wrote, among other things, the Da Vinci Code. Who actually was inspired to write yet another book called Origin by uh, by this by, by this piece. The piece actually came first, uh, and it was uh, developed in in uh, collaboration with uh, with New York Polyphony and and in collaboration with uh, the Woods Hole Bi- uh, Biological Laboratory. Uh, and I think that's where it was actually premiered. Uh, but it, in, as a practicing scientist, I want to go back to your comment about the, having more questions coming out of this than going in, because that is the mark of an experiment that has succeeded. It is an experiment that raises more questions than it answers. And so if that, and my view is this is a success, having, having done that for you. Um, <laughs> for me... Quite literally, experimental music. <laughs> yes, in, in, indeed, and and but for me, this 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 idea of of putting a credo and and a, and a gloria and celebrating uh, this this um, the idea of 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 nature red in tooth and claw in Darwin's own words uh, is is really I think really it touches me in 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 a, in a way that that is is both cerebral and visceral. And it's doing this using an idiom that goes back many centuries. This is, you hear in this piece, you hear elements of Thomas Tallis, you hear elements of Carlo Gesualdo, and yet you hear uh, it, it, this done in a very modern, sonor- with modern sonorities uh, as well. And I think, and, and using motifs drawn directly from biology. And you know, Choirs these days, ensembles that do a lot of new music, also pair it with Renaissance music 
a lot of the time. You'll often see a vocal ensemble that is doing a performance of some Jesualdo, and they could be doing a piece like this. I just saw a performance of uh, music by Monteverdi and by Sherino. And that was a good pairing that I thought worked very well. And I think that that pairing is done a lot in choral music these days. So is it then sincere? I think absolutely. I mean, coming from a, from a scientist perspective, these Darwin's statement of, of uh, the idea of natural selection is an absolutely seminal concept in, in the field of, of biology as we know it today. And then he's got, he uses um, that in Chippet, um, the, the ignorance, uh, the text is ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. That in Chippet, the notes to that are G, A, B flat, and C. Well, G, A, and C are three letters of the DNA code that we know, um, standing for the chemicals that are the chemical bases that make up long strings of DNA, and the T is, of course, the, the T in the solfege scale in C major, C major, which has been made into a B-flat uh, by the composer. Because, which, you know, funnily, but, funnily enough, is C. Right. So, <laughs> so in, 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 anyway, so you get this GATC uh, motif that is, that, are the, that are the four chemical constituents of DNA, and then he has used this and, and developed that in Chipit with, uh, with a sequence that uniquely identifies one of Darwin's finches. Uh, that he that formed the basis for his evolutionary theory uh, that he studied in the Galapagos, and so he's taking all of these motifs and then structuring it in a very Renaissance uh, style idiom uh, that's reminiscent of Talus, um, and and he's doing this with absolute reverence for the text and the subject matter, um, and and I think those juxtapositions um, really uh, and and the, and the structuring this in uh, this 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 dogma on, in a way. I mean, we do refer to the central dogma of molecular biology um, and the idea that, that this DNA sequence can get transcribed and translated and ultimately forms the basis of a complex organism. And, you know, perhaps somebody who is religious enough in a certain way to not think evolution is real might see this as a statement of belief using the credo to talk about charles darwin to you to set charles darwin's words to the credo you could look at it from that angle yeah i i think so uh, and, and i think though that that he's using this as a way of of stating not necessarily a belief, but but in the way of summarizing, you know, the credo in the Latin Mass is the summary and the statement of faith. Sure, this is a this is more of a statement of 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 here is how it here is how the world and how how life works and develops. Well, of course, as we understand it. <laughs> of course, we understand that. But I meant that somebody who perhaps doesn't agree with, like somebody who doesn't think evolution is real, they might think of that as like, oh, no, that's not how life actually works. That's just how somebody said that, of course... We, I, I, I don't know what your views on it are, but we, we, we are all pretty, you know, we have a consensus on it being a real thing. Right. So... I will say, for me, this piece, it was much more effective when you could see what the text is. That's one of the problems with changing the text to the mass, because that's something that, if you know that kind of repertoire, you know, the text is fairly consistent. Um, and 
this isn't. And so having that text and being able to understand the difference outside of all the polyphony, I think is crucial to this piece being successful. Well, that'll do it for, I'm calling this the STEM episode of Pause and Listen. (laughs) (laughs) Richard, Dorothy, Sandy, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our panel this episode was Richard Drehoff Jr., Dorothy Cooper, and Sandy Gibbons. You can see more information about them and more music recommendations in the show notes and on pauseandlisten.com. Our co-creator and marketing manager is Michelle Mengel-Search. I'm John Search, the creator, host, and producer. And next week's episode will be the final episode of Season 1. So make sure you join us next time here on Pause and Listen.